to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say. Alright, beautiful weather outside, isn't it? A good a good Michigan day. Well, we're glad to be here together today. I don't know if you've ever been watching a TV show and you just see something and you're like, man, I wish I could be there to, to tell them what to do. You know, uh, uh, we like to watch all the shows that are like the cop shows and the FBI shows and like the that kind of stuff because it has no basis in reality for us. Like sometimes my wife likes to watch the, the shows where there's like all this family drama. I don't want to do that because I have to deal with stuff in real life, but I never have to solve a murder in real life. So those are the, those are the kind of shows I like to watch. But we were watching this show this last week, and one of the main characters has a girl that's coming into her teenage years. And with that, uh, there's some adjustment as a parent. And uh, this father's wife had died, and so he had been kind of lax, and, and the girl gets in trouble at school. And uh, for something that, as a parent, I would consider a big deal. And so this father is there, and, and she tells what happened at school. She said, Dad, but it's, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And so the dad doesn't punish her. And the person that's with the dad says, that kind of is a big deal. You should do something. Goes, well, she's been through a lot. You know, we'll just, we'll just let it slide. And she goes, you know... If you, start, if you let it slide now, you're going to have to let it slide the next time, and you're really setting yourself up for some hard teenage years. He said, well, we'll just cut her some slack. But as a viewer, you're going, no, that, that's a big deal. Like, you need to do something. And there have been many times in my 11 years of parenting where my kids have done something and said, Dad, it's not that big of a deal. And I looked at them and go, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a big deal. Or, or maybe you've been hanging out with a friend or, or seen somebody in a store and their kid does something that shocks you. They're, they're talking back really rudely. They're refusing to obey something else. And you want to intervene because in your mind you're thinking, hey, this is a really big deal. You need to do something. But the person just, ah, let it go. It's not that big of a deal. Well, in Pergamum, something similar was happening. There were people in the church that were that were conforming to the culture, and they were doing things that everybody else was doing, and the church was kind of going, well, it's not that big of a deal. And Jesus comes, and in His letter He says, nope, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so we're going to look at that today. Jesus basically says, you need to deal with this, or I will. And as a, 
As a dad, I can imagine telling my kids, you need to do something about this, or I'm going to do something about this. And I'm going, okay, I'll do something about this. But let's pray, and we'll look at the Scriptures a little closer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, hear the sound of the thunder, we know You are sovereign over all things, even weather. We know You are all-powerful. Lord, as, as we read from Your Word, let us take heed that these are the very words of the King who will come to rule and reign, who will come in judgment over us. Help us to look at the things in each of these churches and pull out, is this true of me? Or is this true of North Park? And ask ourselves, do we need to repent? So Lord, I pray that You'll speak through Your Word clearly today. In Your name we pray. Amen. So as every uh, letter begins, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Angel here is angelos. It could be messenger or pastor or angel. Um, And here's a a map. If you want to go forward a couple uh, more there. Uh, We have a map of modern day Turkey. And we'll see where these cities are. And you'll see uh, when we're going through, the letters follow a path. So the first letters to Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum. And then next week will be Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, then Laodicea. So uh, this was uh, a letter to Pergamum. Here's an artist's rendering of what Pergamum might look like. It was this beautiful city on the hill, known for a lot of things, including a theater. This is We still have the remains of the theater here, uh, which sat about 10,000 people. And apparently, people say if you sit, stand at the bottom and you sit at the top without any microphone or anything, you can hear them clear as day. Amazing acoustics. A little bit about Pergamum. It was about 100 miles north of Ephesus, um, and Smyrna was about halfway in between. And when you think of Asia Minor, Ephesus, which we looked at two weeks, was kind of like the New York City of Asia Minor. It was the biggest city. It had the trade route. It was where everybody would, would go. Uh, and it was the most important city, kind of, so to speak. But Pergamum was kind of like Washington, D.C. That was where the governor was, where the pre-council was. Um, that's where they, they ruled from. So think of this as the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. And it was this beautiful city. One famous archaeologist said, beyond all the other sites in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city and the home of authority. And so it was built on this beautiful mountain and had uh, this beautiful area overlooking uh, the plains around it. It had the second biggest library in all of the world next to Alexandria. There were over 2,000 um, texts there. Now, now if we think about that, um, sorry, if we think about that, there's no printing press, nothing. This is all handwritten stuff. And history shows that, that Egypt actually had, because of a war, they said, we're not going to give you um, any more papyri. And so then Pergamum developed uh, this parchment paper uh, to write their stuff on. So it was a very uh, well-learned area, very rich area. The city was full of temples, which I'll talk about later, and it was known especially for uh, medical healing. So people would travel from far and wide to come and experience healing at Pergamum. So there's a lot of other interesting things about the city, but we'll, we'll move on for now. Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Talk about an opening. 
If you remember in the letters, uh, each of them kind of follow the same uh, format. Uh, here's from, from Jeffrey Weimler's commentary. We have the Christ title uh, where Jesus gives himself a title as he talks to them. Then we have the commendation, something they're doing good. Then the complaint. Uh, some of them don't have a commendation. Some of them don't have a complaint. And then we have a correction and a consequence. But Jesus said he is the one with the sharp double-edged sword. In, in Revelation 1, the, the first chapter, uh, we'll see that, that all of these Christ titles come out of that first chapter. And so this is the definition that, that John says about Jesus. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in brilliance. Now, going back to Revolution 2, remember Ephesus. Jesus said, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, look, I'm the one that walks with you. I'm the one that holds your church in my hand. That's very comforting. In Smyrna, he said, these are the words of him who was the first and the last who came and died to life. Again, very comforting. They're going to face trials and difficulties. Jesus is the one who came and died and rose again. But here to Pergamum, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Okay, that's like a warning. That starts off with, okay, we need to pay attention. Now, if you grew up in a church like mine, when you would go into the kids' ministry wing and you go into the rooms, there'd be pictures of Jesus surrounded by sheep and with little children on his lap and all this kind of stuff. And that's an important thing. We need those pictures. It's really important to have because that is true, that Jesus was meek and mild and came as a humble servant. But we don't usually walk into a kids' ministry ring and, and, and see the picture of Jesus coming down as a judge with a sword coming out of his mouth. But when we think about Jesus, we have to remember both, right? Meek and mild, humble servant who, who laid aside uh, his privilege and came to serve and ultimately to die, but also the coming king who will come to judge the righteous and even judge the church. So when we think of that, we need to remember that, that Christ is someone that we need to, to have in our forefront as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And if we're going to live in rebellion against Him, to know that He is judge. Here we see that Christ is coming as the eschatological judge. Now that's just a big word for, for end times. When He returns, He will judge the wicked and judge the church. In the, in the previous letters... Each of those descriptions of who Jesus is roots in the biblical text as well as the culture of that city. So Pergamum, as the capital of the Roman prince of Asia, and have it be the place where the proconsul lived, they had what's called the right of the sword, Eus Gladi. Eus Gladi, meaning the ruler, the proconsul, had the rule to look at somebody who was on trial and be like, and then you know what happened after that. So they had the rule of the sword. So, so he's saying to this, this, this town, this church, to say, you know that symbol of power? You know how they have the rule of the sword? Well, really, I'm the one who has the rule of the sword. In Romans 13, Paul says, 
No one in authority is God's. No one in for the one in authority. Sorry, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Paul says, look, God put authority in charge, and they are the rulers that bear the sword. And a sword is also an important part of the story of Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam is going to be referenced. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. I will get into some of it later, but one of the parts of the story, uh, Balaam is riding on his donkey, and, uh, and the donkey, God opens the eyes of the donkey, the donkey sees the angel blocking the way with the sword. And so the donkey goes, nope, I'm not going that way, and goes this other way. Balaam gets mad, but the donkey kind of takes him on his own path, and he gets to another path, and he goes, and there's the angel again with the sword. And the donkey refuses to move forward. And Balaam yells at the donkey and says, I'm going I'm to beat you. I'm going to kill you because you won't move forward. And God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey talks back. It's like, uh, I'm not going to move forward because of that guy. And then God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel. And he's like, oh man. So if you've ever seen the movie Shrek, that's not the first talking donkey that ever existed. But So he's about to reference that story, but here this, this archangel is holding this sword. We'll get back to that in a minute. But there's two different types of swords referenced in Revelation. Now, this particular sword called the Romphea, in the words of Jeffrey Wyma, it had two, and there's a picture of it, it had two-foot-long wooden handle attached to a three-foot-long, slightly curved blade to enable its use both a thrusting and slashing. So that's double-edged. It could go either way. Its long handle and overall length required two hands to wield, and it was capable of cutting an opponent's shield in half with one strong bow. So in other words, it is the powerful sword. And so Jesus is coming with this rompea, this this powerful sword, and he has authority, full authority as power and king, that he's coming with this double-edged sword. And we see... This imagery throughout the Scriptures too. The Word of God is called a double-edged sword. It's living and active. It's sharper. Uh, it pierces to joints and marrow. Uh, so we, we see God's Word is a sword. And we see from Revelation 1 that the sword is coming out of His mouth. So we see the power of God's Word. Now let's continue in verse 13. I know where you live. So he, he, he starts off with this, this threat. I, I, I'm the one who holds the sword. But then he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now in each of these sermons, Jesus says, I know. Jesus knows what we're going through. And here he's going to praise the church in Pergamum because he knows the difficulty they're facing. He says, I know where you live. You don't live in a place that's easy to be a Christian. In fact, you live in a place where Satan has this throne. And last week he referred to the synagogue of Satan. So we see that Satan is is behind all these things that are going on. Now there's a lot of debate about what exactly his throne is. 
Uh, some have pointed to the beauty of the Acropolis and Pergamum and how when you approach the city, it looked like a huge throne. Others have pointed to various temples and argued that, that one of those temples is the throne of Satan. You could see on the slide here some of the just different uh, temples in that picture that they had there. Now, just so you know, if you went to Pergamum, you basically anything you wanted to worship, any, anything you needed, you could find it in Pergamum. Let's say you had a big problem and you needed someone to handle it. You could go to the temple of Zeus, the god of the sky and a protector of other gods and humans. So when you had a big problem, that's where you go. Let's say you wanted to experience pleasure. Well, to, if you wanted to do that, you could go to the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry. You could get drunk, uh, participate in all different sorts of sexual morality that are a little bit too crass for what we talked about this morning. And you could do all that in the name of worshiping the gods. If you're a farmer and you were worried about your crops and you needed to have a blessing from heaven, you could go make a sacrifice to Demeter, who promised good crops. If you were sick, you could go to the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. And people from all over the world would head to this temple. And what they would do is, at night you would go to sleep and they'd release all these snakes that were, um, that were not poisonous. And the thought process is if you're lucky while you're asleep, the snake would go over you and that would bring healing. Kind of like the pools uh, that we see in Israel, that, that thought process. If you had a, a big decision coming up and you didn't know what to do, you could go to the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, who guided Roman armies to victory. And if you wanted to express your thanks for protection and safety, uh, or if you wanted to not get killed, uh, you could go to the temple of the imperial cult and give tribute to Caesar and make sacrifices to stay in good standing with Rome. Are you getting the picture as to why Jesus says this is the throne of Satan? It was a hotbed of worship of all these false gods. And really, these false gods of worship are, are really ultimately pledging allegiance to Satan. Jesus says, I know you, I know you live in this difficult place. Now, aren't you glad we don't have to go to all these different temples with our prayers? In fact, we don't even have to be here to pray to our Savior. That He's present with us in every moment. That when I'm driving on the road and it's raining heavy, I can stop and pray and ask God to give me guidance. That when I'm, when I'm going through a difficult situation, I can, I can pray and ask God to give me wisdom. And He gives wisdom abundantly to those who ask. Then when I'm on my way to work and I know I'm going to talk to that coworker that I am really bothered by, I can ask God, God help me to keep my mouth shut and not say something that doesn't honor you. We serve a God that our, our body is a temple. The, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so we don't need to go to all these other things. But the temptation for Christians was so real. So he says to them, you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Here we have this inclusio. You live where Satan has a throne yet, and there's two things. You didn't. You remained true, and you did not renounce your faith. You remained true, and you did not renounce your faith. This is a, a strong praise from Christ. Now, if you remember in Smyrna, there was persecution happening, but Jesus warned them that coming ahead, there was going to be martyrdom. There was times coming where, where believers were going to have to lay down their lives to follow Christ. 
But here in Pergamum, he says, that already happened. You've already experienced this persecution. You've already seen that Antipas was, was killed. And so we have this from other records. We have records of Antipas. Um, it says that he was killed in a, a brazen bull. Um, and just how, how horrible the society was. They, they would build this brazen bull and then they'd put fire under it and they'd put the Christians or others in the bull and they'd basically cook them to death in the bull. And they even had all these intricate um, pipes and things so that the screams would be turned into basically the sound of a bull so that people could cheer it on. I mean, that's how depraved this society was. And so this Antipas died in that way, and he was called my faithful witness, a a phrase that was used for Jesus himself. And so Antipas would go down in history as an example because of Jesus. Jesus says, look, this is my faithful witness. And and that phrase, my faithful witness, would later uh, go on to be ascribed to other martyrs. And so this church stood fast. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of people coming to them and and threatening them with death, they stood fast. So the question is, would you stand firm? Would you stand firm? If the government said, worship the emperor or you'll lose your job. Worship the emperor or your family will disown you. Worship the emperor or you'll be tortured. Worship the emperor or you'll be killed. Or in our context, you know... Obey this or you'll lose your tax exempt status. Do this or, you know, you'll, you'll get fired. Are we willing to stand firm? So that's a wonderful thing. What a tremendous praise. But it isn't all good in, in Pergamum. See, he continues and says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In the words of one preacher I heard this week, he said, where persecution didn't work, perversion did. So in Numbers, we have the story of Balaam. I already referenced the donkey situation. But basically, uh, the Moabites, Balak, uh, was trying to defeat the Israelites and wanted Balaam, this prophet, to curse Israel. And every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, he met with the Lord, and the Lord wouldn't allow him to do that, and he ended up blessing the nation of Israel. And so Balaam kept getting more and more angry. He's like, I I hired you to curse Israel, and you keep blessing them. What's going on? And and Balaam says, "I, I can't curse them. I can't curse who God has blessed. But then from this passage and from other passages and from historical context, we can see that what Balaam did was he told Balak, hey, I know about these Israelites. I know the way to get them. What you do is you send some of those pretty Moabite women over there. And the Israelite men will be like, hey, that's a pretty lady. And they'll fall for them. And they'll participate in sexual immorality. And then those women will lead them into idolatry. And they'll eat food sacrificed to idols. And they'll worship the other gods. And they'll bow down to them. And that's exactly what happened. Balak sent... Some pretty Moabite women over there. The men were enticed. And then next thing you know, they're worshiping and bowing down to false gods. So the plan worked. And so then, because Balaam couldn't pronounce a curse on Israel, the next best thing was to allow them to live in sin so that God would have to judge their sinfulness. And then, 
God caused a plague to come and 24,000 of the Israelites died. But Jesus is rebuking the church in Pergamum because essentially the same thing is happening. People were being enticed into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, in our context, we don't really see how much this is a temptation, at least the food sacrificed to idols part. Like, we don't, we don't go into Meyer and go, hey, should I buy uh, the steak that was made in Iowa or the steak that was sacrificed to Moloch? You know, we don't have that, that context. Um, frankly, I just like the fact that I can go to Meyer and buy a steak that's already packaged and I don't have to have a cow in my backyard. I, I, I wonder, you know, Millers, you guys, all power to you, but I don't want to have to, like, you know, kick my meat before, like, and clean up its poop before I get to cook it. I just want to go to the store, buy it, and then cook it. It's neither here nor there. So, there was, now there's two different types of, of, of words used in, in the Greek and in the New Testament to describe food sacrificed to idols. Uh, one is makalon, and that's just food that's, that's available in the market. And uh, Paul in Corinthians says, you know, if, if you don't have a problem in your conscience to buy food that was sold in the market and to eat it, you know, that's, that's fine for believers to do. Now, you need to be careful because you might cause a brother to stumble. Uh, so... So he talks about that kind of food. Because what would happen is they would go and, and they would do these sacrifices in the temples and only a small portion of the meat would actually be sacrificed to the idols. The rest of it would either be sold in the markets or be part of these cultic meals. Now the second Greek word used uh, is describing these cultic meals, the eodilothion. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But um, this was considered, everywhere it's referenced, a form of idolatry. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council comes together and they're trying to figure out um, what do Gentiles need to do to be Christians? Because as all these Gentiles are coming to know Christ, uh, you have a whole bunch of Jewish people saying you have to be circumcised, you have to follow law, you have to eat kosher, all this stuff. And, and Paul and, and some of the others are going, well, no, no, you don't have to do that. So they, they got together, the elders in Jerusalem and some of the other guys, and they, and they came up with, um, this is the only requirement we'll give. Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. It says, you know, here's the two rules. Don't, don't eat that food and don't do that deed. And the, in the Didache, an early Christian treatise on morality, it says, keep strictly away from food sacrificed to idols, for it involves the worship of dead gods. Now, to give you some context, uh, J.P. Kane, a historian, said this, Some form of the cult meal was one of the found fundamental features of Greek religious festivities and took the form of a meal devoted to, presided over, or shared with the gods. Usually meat or other food was offered to the gods and then apart from reserved portions consumed by the participants. This was so at the public festivals, organized by the city, state, and smaller political and societal social groups, or the public or private. This was so in the pre-classical and classical Hellenistic and Roman periods. In Pergamum, uh, we have, uh, in our archaeology, we have examples of this. There's one place that's got a seating for 70 people, and there's all this uh, imaging around of, of Dionysus. And so you'd come, and there'd be a sacrifice to Dionysus, and then you'd all eat together. So essentially, these Christians were, were participating in these cultic meals where they were, you know, as part of the meal, they were, there was some form of worship to these 
false gods. Now we know in Corinth the same thing was happening, and the people in Corinth were arguing and saying, well, those gods don't exist. So my friends are saying, hey, praise be to Dionysus. I know Dionysus doesn't exist. So I'm not technically participating in following false gods because a false god doesn't exist anyways. They appealed to Logos, to knowledge. They said, I have the knowledge that there are no false gods. There's only one true God. So by participating in this, I'm not actually conforming. But here Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Now, in many of those settings, those cultic meals, especially with Dionysus, there was also an element of sexual immorality that was part of the meal. And I don't want to go into details of that, but you can do some research and it was not good. So these Christians were participating in this food sacrifice to idols. They were, they were committing sexual immorality. And it says, and likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about that last week. But it seems like this is kind of the same group. Those that are following Balaam and those that are, are, are following the Nicolaitans. That they're, they're doing these two things. Eating food sacrifice to idols and committing sexual immorality. So Jesus says, repent, repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the word repent just means to change one's mind. And so he says, <clears throat> Jesus says, change the way you think about this issue. It's a big deal that these people are doing this. You need to do something about this. In Romans 12, it says we're not to conform to the Paris world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by changing the way we think. Then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. That repenting implies the idea of a U-turn. Where if you've ever been following Siri and you miss the U-turn, you know, what do you hear? Recalculating. Recalculating. And in our life, when we, when we start down a path of sin, we need to recalculate. We need to make a U-turn and turn back toward God and away from the sin in which we're pursuing. So notice the language. He says, you need to repent. Otherwise, I will come to you. That's talking about the church. You need to repent for allowing this stuff to happen in your body, for allowing members of your church to participate in this stuff. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you and I will fight against them. She says, you're not the ones participating in this, but you're allowing this. So if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you. And when I come to you, I'm going to fight against them. In other words, if you're living in direct, unrepentant sin and continuing in rebellion against God, you're inviting the King of the universe to fight against you. And that's not a fight you're going to win. So Jesus says, Church, you need to repent, and if you don't repent, I will come and fight against them. And if our brothers and our sisters are walking in sin, we don't want Jesus to fight against them. We want to come alongside them and confront them with their sin. And help them to experience God's amazing grace and mercy. Because the verb used, fight, it means to make war. Jesus says, I will come and I will make war with them. Again, promising judgment. Not Jesus the meek and mild, but Jesus the coming King. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to listen to this. We need to take it seriously. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying 
to these churches, but also to us. And then it ends for almost all of them and to the one who is victorious. And we talked about that our victory comes through Christ. The victory of the battle is already won. It's through Him we can only be victorious because of Him. But He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now when the Israelites were wandering in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, um, they, they complained because they didn't have food, and God provided this manna. And uh, in the Hebrew, the word basically comes from the word like, what is it? They, they see it, and they're like, what is it? It's like Krispy Kreme donuts. It was like a sweet bread. We don't know if it's actually Krispy Kreme, but um, I would eat that every day. But, um, but there's this manna from heaven. Well, and then you, you fast forward, and, and, and uh, when Babylon takes control of the temple and destroys the temple, the Ark of the Covenant disappears. It was never found again until Indiana Jones in the second movie. Um, but in reality, we ha- we've never found the Ark of the Covenant. And, and many in the Jewish tradition in this day said that the Ark is, is hidden until the Messiah comes. And so it's possible that in this eschatological thought process with the, the Jews in Pergamum and the Christians in Pergamum, they're thinking, when Christ comes, uh, that'll be restored. The, the kingdom will be restored. That manna won't be hidden anymore. And if you, even if you think about the context, he's saying, you're eating this food sacrificed to idols, which is un- insufficient and idolatry. I will give you a better food, a spiritual food, one that is eternal. And there's some other ways to potentially interpret it, but it's, once again, just trying to figure out some possibilities. And then they will now receive the, some of the hidden manna, but they will also be given a white stone, with a new name written on it, known only to the one who received it. Now, some commentators say the white stone is the most difficult thing in all of Revelation to interpret. So, we have all these different ideas of what the white stone might be. It could be a jewel. It could be an amulet. It could be a vote of acquittal. In those times, they had jurors. And if the person was guilty, they'd hold up the black stone. If they were innocent, they'd hold up the white stone. Uh, Also in that time, if someone was victorious in a sporting event... Um, they would get these white stones that almost acted like an invitation with their name inscribed about it. Think of it as like a, as a medal. And then when they went to the banquets, they could show the white stone with their name on it, and they could act, have access to the banquet. I think that's probably the most likely one. Um, I don't have like a ton of confidence, but we just talked about to the one who is victorious. And we're talking about eating the manna, so we think banquet. So I think that's probably the most likely interpretation. Um, and then it says, we'll receive a new name. Now, do you know what that new name is? No, 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 no one knows it except for the one who receives it. Uh, I like to think of it as a, you know, like, in, I wonder if it's like a unique name, you know, something, only, I'm the only one in heaven that will have that name. You know, that'd be cool. Um, uh, since the pandemic, I've been playing uh, Xbox with my nephews and nieces online, and I wanted to change my name because Joshua changed my name without my permission uh, to something that doesn't fit me. And uh, so uh, I wanted to have a new name. And now I have all these 20 to 25-year-olds who aren't related to me calling me Uncle Phil. It's really weird. I go to Detroit, and all the friends of my nieces and nephews call me Uncle Phil. So I thought, I'll just change my name on Xbox to Uncle Phil. But apparently because of the popular, popularity of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, um, I'm Uncle Phil number 4571. So there's 4,570 other Uncle Phil's. So, 
this isn't this somehow this is a new name and, and each of us are given this unique name that nobody else knows but God knows. And so God gives us a unique name. And we see this in other places in Isaiah 56. Uh, God said, and then I will give within them my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. In Isaiah 65, the sovereign Lord will put you, talking about the wicked, to death, but to his servants he will give another name. So again, we don't know exactly how this all works, but it seems like to the ones who are victorious, God is going to give us this, this new name. And I'm looking forward to that name. You know, I think it's going to be a really awesome name. But then, so, so that's the passage, but... But, but we look at these things, and it's a letter written to a different church in a different context, addressing things that we don't deal with. So how do we apply this to our context, to North Park, to, to our individual lives? So first, um, we need to stand firm. We live in a culture that is becoming more and more post-Christian. I think as we head down this path and as the years progress, I think that as Christians, if we have a biblical sexual ethic, I think that we are going to face some persecution. And so are you willing to follow Christ? Are you willing to stand firm even if it will cost you something? Even if it will cost your job? Even if it will cost you family or friends? Are you willing to stand firm? Just because we live in this context, it doesn't give us the right to conform to what is happening in our society. Pergamum, that's, that's what happened. They conformed. So we don't understand the pressure of what it would be like when everybody else is going to the cultic meals. That when your coworker, your boss, they're all going, and for you to refuse to go to that meal would mean ostracization. It could mean losing your job. And so you say, it's not that big of a deal. Those gods don't exist. Dionysus isn't real. I'm just going there. I'm going to have a little steak, take a few sips of wine. Ignore what they do when they do their little ceremony stuff, and I'll be good. What's the difference? In fact, I'm a Christian, so I need to witness to them, right? I need to build relationships with them. And it's a slow fade where that church of Pergamum just slowly started to conform. So one, uh, we need to stand firm. Two, we need to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I, I think the biblical sexual ethic is going to be the battleground for the church. I think that's where it's going to come in. They're going to come in and say, if you don't believe this, if you don't think this, you're going to lose funding, you're going to lose your tax exempt. I think that's what's coming down the road. But I think right now, the risk is that these views are sneaking into the church. Uh, you know, if you look at the rates of cohabitation among Christians, if you look at the beliefs about um, LGBT issues and some of those other things, when you look at just the, the general view on the purpose and place of sex and why God has designed sex and, and, and why it's a good thing and why it's designed for marriage and God's purpose in it. Not to mention the prevalence of, of porn among Christians. As Christians, we need to stand on the truth of Scriptures and not compromise just because we experience pressure from the outside world to conform. Just because everybody else says, you need to believe this, you need to do that, that doesn't mean that we should conform. Third, we need to avoid idolatry. Now, again, there's not any cultic meals around here, 
that we're being invited to go and participate in. But it's so easy in our society to ascribe other things more worth than God. I think much like Laodicea, we live in a very affluent society full of great riches. And it can be so easy to pursue the American dream, to make our utmost pursuit to to have the, the best things and the best vacations and the best retirement and to lose sight of what God is calling us to do. Worship is just worship. It's ascribing something worth. Are we giving God the most worth? Are we ascribing Him the most worth? Are we worshiping Him above all else? Fourth, we need to treat sin in the church serious. We need to treat sin in the church serious. The church in Pergamum is judged not because the church as a whole is living in sin, but because the church was allowing some within the church to live in sin, and they weren't doing anything about it. They were saying, it's not a big deal. We'll just leave them there. And so that's why, that's why we have D groups. I mean, that's one of the reasons. As a place, a safe place where people can, can study God's Word together, be accountable to be in God's Word. Be accountable to, to, to be confronted with sin. When a brother in my D group is sinning, I can confront him. And, and he can experience grace and forgiveness and mercy. And we, we huddle around him. We pray with him. And we help him go to battle against that sin. To fight it together. To come alongside each other. It's a place to encourage each other. It's a place for community where we can walk through life together and help each other grow. So Jesus warns the church, if they don't repent, He will come to them, he will come to you, the church, and he will fight against them. So the last thing, it's not enough there, but if you're right now purposefully living in rebellion to God, if you're walking in sin, unrepentant sin, away from God, just saying, you know, I know you say this in your word, but I, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. Then take heed. Jesus is the one with the double-edged sword. He says, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to fight against you. So God is merciful and gracious. And we see in Hebrews 4 that if, we, if, we've, if we've made a mistake, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and know we'll receive mercy. God is, is like the father who has the prodigal son who has run away and he's waiting at the door for you to come in repentance. And he's going to run to you and, 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 and hug you and, and give you all the greatest blessings. We serve a gracious and merciful and wonderful God who has been so patient with me time and time again as I've strayed and wandered. But that same God says, look, I'm the king. And if you're walking in unrepentant sin against me, I'm going to be against you, not for you. And so you need to repent now. So don't leave today without doing that. Take time during the last song. Pray. Pray. Ask God. Repent. And it says, the Bible says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He wants to forgive you. He, I love, man, when my kids mess up, I can't wait to forgive them. When they come to me and say, Dad, I'm sorry I messed up, I can't wait to embrace them and say, I love you. There's nothing you can do that will change my love for you. But I don't want them to keep on walking in rebellion. I'm waiting. And Jesus is waiting. Right now, maybe He's waiting for you. You've been wandering away from Him. And saying, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. And, and today, you need to hear, it's, it's a big deal.
Turn to Him. Repent. Run into His open arms, which He has for you. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, I'm so thankful that You're so gracious and merciful with us, but we need the reminder sometimes. It's not okay to live in sin. It's not okay to reject You. It's not okay to conform, to wander away. Lord, help us as a church to be a safe place where people can be open with their sin and their shame and their guilt. They can experience love and healing and forgiveness. And they know people will come alongside them and help them walk through and help them fight the battles that we're here for them. Lord, help us to be people that aren't worried to confront sin when it's there in a way that is honoring to You. Come alongside our brothers and sisters and say, Hey, I'm, I'm with You. Let's, let's work on this together. Lord, if there's anyone here today that's walking in unrepentant sin, I just pray that right now they'll confess it to You. Know that You are merciful. Know that You are gracious. Know that You forgive completely. They'll repent. They'll turn away from it and they'll turn to You. Help us to live this out in our daily lives. In Your name we pray. Amen.